Nonne Solomon Dominatus Demonum Est He's come back to finish what you interrupted and each time he kills he can bring back another of his minions unless you stop him Welcome to Now Playing's Sometimes They Come Back Retrospective Series Hello baby <laughs> Part of the now playing Stephen King podcast review series. There's no stopping this heavy flow. Hosted by Arnie. He's not like regular people. He's different. Stuart. Oh, he's a tough man. He ain't scared any. And Jacob. Well, they're not human. They're what's left when the humanity has been sucked out of them. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Yeah, we'll keep that in mind. Listener discretion is advised. Time to rock, Jock. <laughs> Today we're discussing Sometimes They Come Back, starring Tim Matheson, Brooke Adams, Robert Russler, directed by Tom McLaughlin. Hello, baby! This is Arnie, your co-host of Now Playing. Time to rock, jocks. It's Stuart in L.A. This is your host that's just a piece of dust in someone's eye, Jacob. And we are back uh, after a little Captain America break. Back to Stephen King and back to a short story that most people probably have never heard of. (laughs) I gotta say, I remember many of the stories in Night Shift, but sometimes they come back. I think I might have read it for the first time a week ago. I'm sure I read it way back in the day, but I know this far more because of the movie adaptations than I do for the short story. I mean, how much do you remember about short stories you read in junior high? Not very much in my case, but with the movie adaptation that came out in 91, I don't remember seeing this first run. I think it actually happened, and I was like, damn, I missed it, and really upset with myself, because in 1991, if you miss something on television, you never saw it again. There was no BitTorrent. They didn't put TV out for rentals regularly. Come on, if you could figure out how to set your VCR, you could watch it. That's true. You did. That was back when that was an art. Like, there were people <laughs> that could record their shows and people that couldn't. Now, yeah, it's it's easy. DVRs have made it so that everyone gets to see their stuff. But you're right. One time only, and if it wasn't started properly or you weren't home at that time and hour that it aired... Yeah, gone. I didn't know this existed. Well, that's the thing is, it was worse for me because I only found out about it reading in Entertainment Weekly after it had aired. It's not like I screwed up the VCR. No promotion for this thing. No, it's not one of the hyped ones. ABC is the one that is in bed with Stephen King. We have covered and will continue to cover their huge miniseries, and all of those were kind of events. Even the bad ones, Langoliers and Tommyknockers, those had huge pushes for audiences. This was on competitor CBS television, and I don't know when it came out, and I don't know who watched it or what the ratings were, but yeah, that it became a trilogy, hell, I didn't even know that there was one of them. Well, this came out in 1991. It aired on a Tuesday night in May. Ooh, bad night. I think it was against Roseanne, if memory serves, so it was screwed to begin with. Keep in mind, King was in bed with CBS back then. He was developing a TV series that would air on CBS, Golden Years. Oh, I never watched that either. See, I think I just ignored CBS back then. Back then, they were really uncool. They were the old folks network. King was all over television back then. ABC had the glory. Golden Years was quickly canceled. But I did have redemption, though. They re-aired this, because when you could only see things on TV once, usually on like a Saturday night, they'd re-air it a few months later. So I did catch this in repeats later that year, and, well, let me just say I never saw the sequels. <laughs> Aren't you the lucky one to see it in repeats? Yeah, I don't know that anyone, uh, you know, missed out if they happened to not be home on the Tuesday night, but, hey. Here we are. We got to do all of the night shift, and we are now seven podcasts in, starting with Sometimes They Came Back. And want to point out, this could have been one of the segments in Cat's Eye. Dino De Laurentiis was the one that stopped this and said, you know, it's good enough. It can be its own standalone feature. I don't know when he decided TV, but this was originally going to have a cat running around in and out of it, (laughs) and Drew Barrymore, presumably. Well, I'll tell you when he decided TV, when he ran out of money. Oh, okay. Because De Laurentiis bet big on Stephen King, and much like that second segment from Cat's Eye, 
kept losing big. I mean, he had Cat's Eye, which was a financial failure, Silver Bullet, and honestly, the final nail in the De Laurentiis King coffin was Maximum Overdrive. Oof, yeah, coming very soon, guys. We'll be getting to that by the end of summer. So, when you take all of that together, De Laurentiis had planned on doing this. He was preparing this as a standalone feature film back when he was doing Firestarter, but after a lot of financial troubles... Things changed hands here to there to another, and finally it ended up as a made-for-CBS TV movie. And even though that screams to me low aspirations, I don't think I've liked a single TV (laughs) attempt at Stephen King so far. Looking at the night shift and what's to come, most of it I haven't seen. This is my best hope. When I look at the landscape and I see what's coming, I gotta say that this is probably the best chance I have for the next 18 shows to give a green arrow. Does it raise your hopes that this was indeed, much like those Hulk films and Captain America films, intended during creation for international theatrical release, and it did see overseas theatrical release? (laughs) I know that we would have found a way to watch it anyway, but yeah, that just ensures that I was going to. But again, I would say uh, this one, it's the best hope. The reason being, I I like this short story. I went back to it. It doesn't have sort of the iconic villains that some of King's best story do. It's Greasers again. I'm not my favorite villain of his, but I actually like the way it played out on the page. And, you know, I actually think, yeah, this could be a good feature. You can hear my review over at booksandnachos.com. I did a full breakdown. In short, I think this has some great ideas and just not great execution of a short story. And I'll say right now, before we get into this movie review, I think that a lot of the problems with the short story are actually fixed here in this movie, so I'm looking forward to discussing it. Well then, I guess we should get into the plot and get on with it. Jim Norton, played by Tim Matheson, for you Animal House fans, (laughs) 1941 forever, is an English teacher who's having a hard time finding work after an incident at his last school where he lost his temper and got violent with a student. The only job he can find is back in his old hometown teaching English. But it turns out there's more than bad memories for Jim and his family, Actual ghosts have come from the grave to kill him. 27 years earlier, Jim and his older brother Wayne were walking on the train tracks, going to the library, when a group of greasers tried to mug them. Wayne got stabbed, and in the chaos, Jim stole the greasers' car keys, so when the train came barreling down the tracks, the greasers were killed as well. But now Vinny, leader of the gang, is a student in Jim's class. Mysteriously, Jim's other good students die, and members of Vinny's gang replace them. Finally, a showdown takes place back on the train tracks. Vinny kidnaps Jim's wife and son, and Jim goes to find Carl, the only surviving member of the gang, who's now an older man. The final showdown occurs, and when Carl is stabbed by Vinny, the spirit of Wayne, Jim's dead 12-year-old brother, emerges. Again, Jim steals the greaser's car keys, and they are again hit by the train, gone for good this time. Wayne tries to get Jim to go with him to the other side, but Jim says he has to remain with his wife and son on Earth, but that they will meet again someday as credits roll. Sometimes they come back. I know they're referencing the greasers, but I gotta say, as far as callbacks go, there are a ton, starting right here at the beginning. I gotta say, when you have a disgraced teacher trying to make good by taking a last-ditch job with his wife and son in a car trip, the first king I think of, not this one. I'm thinking Shining. Yeah, I definitely got that Jack Torrance vibe off of this. Mm-hmm. I, you know, the other one with this train tracks and dead bodies, you know, the body or stand by me. Is this stuff from the book, Arnie? Is this ideas that would later develop into The Shining and the body? Absolutely. If you look at King short stories, you'll see a lot of these vestigial ideas. He has ideas that grow over time. And yeah, this is very much, to me, Shining and Stand By Me with the evil greasers picking on the younger kids, the dead brother... Kid hit by a train, that's all stand by me. And then you've got The Shining with ghosts and a teacher who was violent having to take a last-ditch job. And then, hell, if you add the movie, stuff that wasn't in the book, you get a little bit of the dead zone and a little bit of Christine in here. Yeah, no, there's more. I'll point them out. Yeah, sometimes they come back. I think they all come back. I think Sometimes they call back. <laughs> yeah, I think every Stephen King comes back for a bow here, but uh, not Drew Barrymore. We don't see anybody in flames. But other than that, I think it's the greatest hits here. And Shining, you know, 
I'm not getting any Kubrick out of this, but it's a whole lot better than the future Shining TV miniseries. I, I like this family well enough. They're bland. I mean, Tim Matheson is largely known for his 70s, 80s comedy, so I am getting a little uh, Stephen Weber here, but, uh, you know, at least I mean, he's not being asked to go crazy. He's a guy that's haunted by the past, but he's not a guy that's going to be driven insane by the past, so I think he's all right. You're missing a big callback, though. Brooke Adams is here from the Dead Zone. Yeah, that's we haven't covered the Dead Zone because, of course, the book came out after Night Shift, but I, I recognized her as a King Vet. She actually refused to do this. I don't know if you guys noticed the credited screenwriters here and what movie of theirs we did last year. Well, I've noticed several, but uh, what would have been last year's? Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. <laughs> well, oh. I don't blame them. They didn't fund it. So, I mean, I think most of my problems with that movie were with the budget. But, uh, okay. Oh, come on. That was a pretty bad script. We'll be covering them again when they, they did uh, Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes. So that'll be in our gold donation. And they did Star Trek VI. So, yeah, we've covered a lot of their sequels or will be very soon. Well, apparently their original script, which they're the credited ones on, was much closer to King's original short story. And spoiler alert, the wife dies mercilessly and there is no kid. It turns out Tim Craig did a rewrite on this, fleshed out the character, added a son, made it a little bit more humanistic and got Brooke Adams on board. That's interesting because I did feel like this story could go real dark at some point. You know, if you've ever seen the class of 1984, it's, it's kind of a fun exploitation film about a teacher in the inner city and like punks like kill his wife and he goes for revenge. I, that, that's the kind of vibe I got. I'm like, is it going to go that dark? We'll, we'll discuss the ending. It doesn't. Spoiler. But I, I could see it going that way. It's a big thing in a lot of vigilante movies. Uh, movies about punks, Death Wish is one where they do it. Every member of Charles Bronson's family gets killed, and then he goes on a Death Wish. Uh, yeah, it's uh, what would have been popular at the time. I don't think Stephen King was inventing anything new by making that, but I could have gone along with that being the original. I'll, I'll go ahead and spoil it. I think I like the original story more than the way that this movie comes off, but uh, Brooke Adams, she's an okay actress, kind of dull. I always get her confused with Karen Allen, but uh, she was in Body Snatchers, so. Yeah, that's why I looked her up, as I thought it was Karen Allen. <laughs> yeah. Like, was that Karen Allen? Oh, wait, no, it's the Dead Zone Girl. But, you know, this family's okay. It's I keep in mind that it's TV, and that TV usually does mean comforting and, and or boring. And Here we have both, yes. Yes. <laughs> They're a generic family with a dad that is haunted by the past, and in way too many flashbacks, uh, but by the first commercial break, we finally know what that past is. Yeah, all these flashbacks, it's confusing me. Why are they doing so many flashbacks? Then I realized, oh, this is a TV movie. So whether you started watching at 8 or came in a little late at 8.45, you know, they're, yep. they're going to have to catch you up at some point. See, I think that what they're doing is bringing you into this world, starting you in the present. But I think it really helped that I remembered aspects of this from when I saw it back in 91. So I knew where all these flashbacks were going watching at this time. But the way they're introduced, it felt very king to me. It also reminded me a little bit of It, the way presence tense stories play out with past tense flashbacks yeah i did like that you know not all these flashbacks and you know i always like a good mystery something compelling you to keep watching what you know is motivating this character what happened to him in his past i was kind of able to figure out pretty quick because i'm like oh this is like stand by me I, you know i did like the aspect that there were times where you know he'd hear a child crying or he'd hear a train and he'd run into his Scotty's room, his son, and but he's not crying. And the house would suddenly change. I'm like, is this like a shining thing where things are transforming? Or is this like just an artistic way of doing a flashback? It's kind of ambiguous. I like that. How supernatural are these flashbacks? How is he having visions of the past? He's going to literally see ghosts from the past later on. But what is going on early on with all these flashbacks? They aren't really clear, but I think that there's some dialogue given to the fact that it took him coming back for these things to manifest. That they haunted this house, surely, but if another family had moved in here, they would not have met these greasers. They would have not had this. It was a problem specifically for our main character, Jim. He was the only one that could bring them to life, and he's the only one that can put them to rest. You see, that's my problem with the short story is, at least here, I think they fixed something in that short story. Here, he's going back home. He's stirring up the ghosts of the past. He's driving past 
the old homestead. It looks kind of like the Michael Myers house. He's there, and it's bringing the spirits back. In the story, he's in a totally different city again. These ghosts just follow him and show up for no apparent reason. It just is a random occurrence. And so here, by taking him back home, making it all occur at home, having the events occur where they occurred back in, what would it be, 63, I think I did the math at, 27 years earlier, Mm -hmm. it really gave it more of a natural feeling than I felt the short story had. I won't disagree with that. The deficiencies come later as far as what the story and this movie have. Uh, But the beginning, the setup, you might be right. They justify a lot. I do wish they'd made it 30 years. 27 just bugs me. The 27th <laughs> anniversary. What is three more fucking years? Just make it three more years. Greasers were far more commonplace in my mind in the happy days of the 50s than in 60s anyway. Yeah, that may be due to happy days in Greece, Arnie, but I agree with you. I felt like by 63, it shouldn't be the same thing, but they were still around. It just as a culture, as a subculture, I don't think greasers had the same sort of cachet. But what we have here is Jim and his older brother Wayne uh, walking to the library to pay a fine on the train tracks and getting mugged by four teenage boys in a hot car who really, really need 10 cents, I guess. I think they wanted more money, and I get the impression that they were a constant antagonistic presence in these boys' lives. They didn't realize all they had was, what, the 12 cents that were to pay the library fine? Yeah, it seems like, uh, well, it is. It's pocket change. But, yeah, he dies for it. I just want to point out, they pull a knife, and it's clear from the facial reactions that nobody saw this coming. It wasn't an attempted murder. It wasn't a premeditated death. But uh things escalate when they can't turn up more money, and so older brother Wayne gets stabbed, falls over. He's dead, right? No. He could have lived if the train hadn't hit him, too. <laughs> yeah. He was still alive. They could have pulled him off those tracks, got him away from that explosion. I think he would have lived, but it wasn't enough to kill him. Reservoir Dogs tells me a bullet wound to the stomach takes three days to kill you, so <laughs> I've got to think that a knife wound's about the same. All right, because this is a big sticking point here for me, because what we're going to find out, the big guilt trip here is that little Jim saw this occur and ran away. His older brother actually says, run away, Jim, run away, run away. It's going to bother him for the next 27 years that he did this. I ask you, is this a moral dilemma? Should he have stuck around? There was nothing he could do. I mean, literally, a train is barreling down the tracks. He is trying to pull his brother off the tracks, and it's when that train is just getting too close and that car is not moving. That's when he decides to run. Whether it's a moral dilemma or not, I think it's going to haunt you for the rest of your life. It's, you know, survivor guilt. You know, whether he thought it was right or wrong, he's that's going to torment him his whole life. Yeah, I agree with Jacob. It's not that he's at fault. It's just he feels guilty for things outside of his control. Well, then is he at fault for killing the three or four greasers that are in the car? Because he has gotten their lucky rabbit foot car key and throws it away rather than, you know, gives it back to them and leaves them marooned on the tracks to be run over. Is he their murderer? Or are they just stupid for not being able to get out of a car when the train's coming? I don't know why the other ones stayed there. I don't know. Maybe it was like the General Lee and Dukes of Hazard, and those doors were welded shut and is too hard to slip out the windows or something. <laughs> no, no, we see it open. I think it's just they were convinced that that would get them out. They'd find the key and be saved and not necessarily be able to outrun it. But is he their killer? I don't think anything he did was bad. I mean, the greasers in the end are the murderer of the brother. Whether or not the stab wound or the train was the fatal blow, if they hadn't stabbed him, the brother would be alive. And if they haven't driven their car on the tracks, they would have been alive. I mean, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if they hadn't picked the fight, everyone would be fine. But I get what you're saying here. But for me, it's a big sticking point because we're dealing with a ghost story. And ghost stories always work best for me when people have legitimate guilt about something that they could have changed in their past. To me, it would be much stronger if Jim had done something that would make going back and recreating the scenario, as they're going to do in the climax, have a different outcome. Yeah, I do find a a lot of this film very dark and cynical. I I do see these greasers as blaming Jim for their death. You know, when we get to the end, they're going to reenact. I'm not quite sure we'll talk about it, but they have to reenact this scene. 
But I think at that moment, he's supposed to give them the key so they could get away. And so I think they hold him responsible. And that, that's why I think it's it's a darker ghost story. It's not that he did something wrong. It's just these ghosts are out for revenge. They're pissed off that they died, not necessarily unjustly by his hand, but they want that revenge because his actions led to their death. And from Jim's perspective, I think what he needs is closure. He's tormented by the loss of a brother. That is a theme that comes back again and again and again in King's work is the death of a sibling that you never get over. It tears apart the family. Yeah, this guilt, he just needs to have the closure with his brother and not be haunted by these nightmares. It's not that he did anything wrong. It's just that the horror of that day has haunted him to this day and is likely the cause for his violent temper that caused him to lose his job. Right. That's a bit of a stretch. I mean, 27 years and grief counseling. You're right. We're probably meant to make that leap. Everything that's gone wrong with this guy in adulthood is because he hasn't processed what happened to him in this moment when he was nine years old. I am just going to make the case one more time. I think it would be better if he had done something. That way he could undo it or redo it in the end. To me, movies are about active characters. For him to just re-experience it is kind of boring. I couldn't remember when re-watching this how this ended. I knew how the short story ended. I did wonder if this might end with a Flight of the Navigator-type ending. Oof. <laughs> I don't even remember that, film. I can't. I don't remember the ending, out. but I was sure grateful <laughs> when it came. <laughs> well, it's the main plot of... Uh, the opening plot of Flight of the Navigator, but my thinking of it here was that he would save his brother and start raising his 12-year-old brother as his son. You know, in Flight of the Navigator, this kid goes on a space flight and comes back, and his little brother's now, like, an adult. And I don't think anyone yeah. remembers that, but... <laughs> That's okay, we're never going to cover that movie. A- at least it's not real genius. Or- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was the part, it was like E.T. With, with if Elliot got to ride with, you know... Pee-wee Herman. Yeah. Yes. Right, right, with Pee-wee Herman, yeah. You, you are right, Arnie, I did, that's not the reference I went to, but just watching the film, I did think he was going to be raising his older brother as his child. Having read the story, I definitely thought the ending, I hoped the ending would go somewhere else that it does not, and that is my gripe against it. But whatever. I think that there are real reasons why they go with the more smalty ending that they do. We'll get there when we get there. But let's get back to the present day, because we've got a lot of time between the first revealing flashback and the end where we see Jim in torment. Yeah, we're supposed to really get into Jim's classroom life. I guess in the late 80s, early 90s, the new greasers were the jocks? I guess, you know, at least in this class. I remember it, even when I was in high school, there were those classes that just the jocks took, the history class or the math class, because the coach ran it, and it was there for their easy A so they could pass it. I, I actually related a lot to this class. I remember these kind of dynamics in high school, you know, the jocks trying to run things and get their easy A, and then you had geeks or the punks or whatever, the, the kids that, you know, were kind of interested in what the teacher had to say, and they were annoyed by these jocks that just wanted to float through. So I, I, I actually like a lot of this classroom stuff. This is the best stuff for me. I agree, and I think it's a little disappointing that they don't spend more time with these kids. I think that so much time is devoted to Tim Matheson. More time than anyone else in film history has ever given Tim Matheson, (laughs) this movie gives him. And he's boring. I mean, I get his problem, and I got it when they did five more flashbacks. Let's have some other characters in here that matter. And if teens are watching this, why not make this a teen sitcom kind of class? I mean, this is going to be the the mechanism by which his torment comes back to haunt him. This class is going to slowly be picked off, and those greaser ghosts are going to take their place in the seats. Yeah, there are three students who we're supposed to care about. The third of which actually starts off as a douchebag and becomes a good student. Anyone named Chipster, you just know you're going to hate him for a while. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, he's definitely an alpha beta from Revenge of the Nerds. But you get uh, the first one, Billy. I don't even remember him being in the class. He's introduced riding his bicycle up to the teacher's van and talking to him like a nice kid. I would have liked to have seen some bonding between the teacher and the student here. The first time I really pay attention to Billy, the first time Billy gets full frame close up, Billy's going to be dead soon. Agreed. It was a real waste. And I, admittedly, we had to get to it. The thrill of this, the gimmick of this, in a short story, what we learn very quickly 
is like I said, one kid in the present day drops dead. Next day, new kid arrives in class, and guess what? He's a ghost greaser. So someone had to die, but yeah, why did they have to do it to Billy? Billy seemed sweet and like someone that could help carry this movie. And that's where I say that this film does, again, here at the beginning and the middle, not so much at the end, but it feels darker and cynical. It's taking kids I like. I like Billy. Yes, he doesn't get enough time, but maybe, again, I can relate to him. I kind of felt like that in high school, but I like this kid. It was the earring, right? I never had earrings. I just kind of, he seemed kind of, he seemed kind of punk rock to me, even though I think he was listening to like Bob Dylan, (laughs) but he had his bike and his guitar over his back. I I like that kid. Yeah. You liked his type, I guess, because there is no character there to like. (laughs) He's the sensitive one, but they introduce a lot of things with the death of Billy that I really hoped would pay off more than they did because Billy can see this hot rod from the fifties chasing after him and Jim can see it. So. Billy is running on his bike, being chased by this hot rod, being chased by Jim in a van. But then we get the point of view shot of some random people on the side of the road changing a tire or something, and they can't see this spectral 50s vehicle. They only see Billy screaming for help, being chased by Jim in a van. So, on the one hand, I'm getting a little Christine because there's a ghost car running people down, but on the other hand... I'm really interested in, is Jim going to be suspected in the deaths of these teens? Yeah, I was really wondering if you guys were going to think that that could be an ending. If they followed the short story, there's no way that that was where they were going. But I was wondering, Jacob, if you haven't read the story, would you think that this could be like Shining? Was Jim going to go crazy? Yeah, I thought that's where this was going. And, you know, with horror, there's so many different kinds of horror. When I say I don't like horror films, it's usually slasher films. But this kind of stuff is what I find scary is here's this teacher. He's trying to do everything right and forces beyond his control are putting him in circumstances where he looks like the guilty guy. He looks like the crazy guy. You know, the principal always walks in at the wrong moment where he's yelling at the class because someone threw an apple at his head. Or, you know, he's trying to give Billy his wallet back and it looks like he was the one that ran him off the road. This, this I, I actually like where they're going with this, that, yeah, th- this man is going to be turned crazy by forces beyond his control. He's, you know, despite him trying to do the right thing, these kids are just so bad, they're going to break them. And again, darker, cynical feeling to it that I actually like. I feel some actual dread. As corny as some of these flashbacks are and as wooden as some of this acting is, I do get this sense of horror, the sense that he might be committed as crazy, even though he's not. And that's where I'm going, too, is even though I knew the short story ending, I mean, come on, there's so many of these King movies that don't follow the short story. By having a son here, I already know they're not following the short story that closely. And I'm enjoying the feeling of him getting boxed in, where he sees the ghosts. I don't believe he's going insane. I don't believe it's going to be The Shining. But I do believe that he could be convicted for the murder because everybody around him isn't seeing what he's seeing. I don't think it's in his head because Billy sees it too. But I do wonder if this is going to be a situation where he starts getting persecuted for these crimes. It goes on for about an hour. They eventually have, it escalates to the point that Jim does get arrested. And while he is in lockup, Dukes of Hazard style, the car goes after <laughs> his son while he's walking down the middle of the road. That's my problem is everyone's in the middle of the road. The son finally gets it in his head to run off the road and hide under a car. But everybody getting chased down by this car is just going straight down the road. My first instinct is get the hell on a curb. <laughs> there was no sidewalks. It was it was pointed out by the child himself. No sidewalks in this community. So I guess that's what you were expected to do. But uh, anyway, my point for bringing it up is about an hour into this movie, that kind of gets dropped. But you're right. For the first half, we're to expect that, yeah, either he's the one that's guilty or he's going to be convicted of the crime and the guilty could get away with it. And I was also getting just a little bit of the dead zone out of this. And again, it's not in the short story, but here, when the girl dies, he knows she's dead. He sees flashes in a dream. He leads the cops on the search. So it's almost like he's having those kind of John Smith premonitions. Yeah, I I thought maybe he has the shining when it starts showing him this vision. I think even before he knew she was dead, he was seeing these these visions and then they come back later. My question, here's a logistical question. So we're told that as each of these students dies, it brings back one of the greasers. What is, is it just Jim's presence that allows 
I guess, the hot rod to show up. I'm assuming the greasers were driving it to kill Billy so Vinny could show up and be the first one. Or am I just thinking too hard about this film? I, well, I, I would say that if indeed there is a car that no one else can see but Jim, yes. It's because he's moved back and he's still obsessing over these greasers from the past that they have enough power to run down anyone. That maybe they drive around for the past 27 years, but they couldn't actually knock somebody off of the road until the man that saw them kill his brother showed up. That's a very Nightmare for Freddy type solution, but I'll agree with you. Okay. I thought it was a Shining <laughs> solution, you know? The ghost grew powerful because Danny showed up and he had a really strong sense of the Shining. Yeah, that's it's a little underdeveloped. I think it's a yeah. credible theory. I go with it because there's not a whole lot of other explanation. <laughs> Otherwise, you just write it off as a plot hiccup. Speaking of Nightmare on Elm Street, Stuart, did you recognize Vinny? I did. Welcome back. Brady. Robert Russler. Yes, Robert Russler. You know, he was all over the 80s. He was in Vamp. He was in My Demon Lover. He was in a lot of bad 80s horror movies. (laughs) And uh, yeah, he was in the worst nightmare film. But I still liked that one. I don't know why. (laughs) I wonder, is it a mistake to bring the ringleader back first? I know you want to have a a big threat early. This movie could use a jolt. It's kind of dull. But uh, I almost feel like it would be better if we had the subordinates building up to the arrival of Richard Lawson, the baddest of the four greasers. Lawson here. I mean, the other guys, they have a look, but they really don't have any menace. Here, by having Lawson come back, Lawson, I feel is a threat alone. It ramps up the danger, it ramps up the suspense. The others coming back, I don't view that as getting stronger and getting more dangerous. I view it as a counting down, a ticking clock to the final showdown. The gang's coming all back together. What are you talking about? The next one to come is Vinnie Vincent. He was in Kiss. And and he invaded someplace. <laughs> yeah, that's what he looks like without the makeup. No one knew. He was in Kiss? Well, there's a Vinnie Vincent that's the guitarist of Kiss. Well, I didn't know that was his real name. I just know their stage names. He was a guitarist fill-in when Ace Freely quit (laughs) until Egos got him fired, too. All I ought to know not to do mess around talking about Kiss with Arnie present. Man, we got some stories there, but Arnie knows his Kiss. When we do Phantom of the Roller Coaster, we'll talk Kiss. Never. (laughs) Tempting. I may take you up on that one day. But uh, anyway, back to this movie. I agree with you. Yes, you're right. There's only one greaser that's truly got any kind of star power, and it is the first one. The character is Richard Lawson. The actor is Robert Russler. He has star power, and our eyes never even look at the other guys. They come, and it's basically... It's just to fill the kill quotient, right? This is a slasher to some extent. We need to keep having kills to stay interested here. So we have this chick, Kate, who wanders around the streets at night while her parents, or her mom, messes around with her stepfather or whatever, and they hunt her down and hang her in a barn. Yeah, she was the one I felt a little bad for. But it does help give a body count, but because it is TV, and even though what we watched was rated R, they added some scenes back in to get the MPAA R rating on video. What? Yeah, I don't know what they added. It was not much. Mm -mm. It really just doesn't have that kind of thrill that comes from a lot of slasher films. And especially with this one, because it is done so stylistically, Jim is leading the cops there. It doesn't have that kind of adrenalized thrill of a slasher film. No. And I, that's a mark off as far as I'm concerned. And, and as far as I'm concerned, I don't mind. I, I like, again, that Jim, I, I don't know. I, I do got to wonder about how smart this guy is. He knows she's been killed, but like calling the cops and say, Hey, this chick's been killed. She's over in this cornfield or maybe in this barn when no one else knows she's dead. <laughs> that, you got to know that's going to make you look guilty. Yeah. But by the same token, if you have this knowledge or this belief, you're trying to do a good thing. It puts you in a very bad place. That's one of the things I like about Jim being implicated in this movie is he's trying to do good. He's almost too goody-goody a character in this. Because he is so good, he's getting blamed for it. Just a logistics question, though. 1991. All of us were in high school back then. If a 50s greaser had shown up as a transfer student (laughs) in your class, wouldn't he have gotten some aside glances and wonder what the hell's going on? I don't know. At at least out in LA, we had the rockabilly scene that was going on. We had some guys that dressed like this. They weren't greasers, but they were into rockabilly and social distortion. And yeah, they dressed like this. It wasn't too weird. 
the, you know, the 50s were still a part of the 80s. It did come back thanks to Back to the Future and, yeah, just sort of style and trends. I know what you mean. You know, I, the Stray Cats, you know, they were the greasers of the 80s. It was a scene, but it is a bit of a stretch. And I do really pass judgment on the admissions office. I mean, how do these kids <laughs> show up? No parents, no sign of where they live or a phone number to call or nothing. They live in a car and, okay, sure, you're from Milford. That No one even goes and looks up to see that Milford isn't a high school. It's a graveyard. This was before the internet. Do you have any idea how many schools there were in the U.S.? You took a paper transcript and called it good. My only thing is I went to a high school of 2,000 students in Cape Coral, Florida. So 2,000, that's a big high school. There were tons of jean jackets, ripped jeans, big hair. No greasers, but it was Florida. Leather coats might have been a little hot. You don't know about greasers, but you knew there was people sneaking into that school. <laughs> I do believe Arnie knows a lot of scams pulling off high school. That's because I know Arnie. I believe you, Arnie. I, if you say it could be done, I, I don't have a problem with this anymore. <laughs> in 91, yes. These days, damn internet. And we do get one more kill in, you know, they gotta get Chipster. I think he should have been the first one to go. I would have kept the sensitive punk till last and had it be a little bit more emotional. Everyone wants Chipster to get run over particularly since he's conspiring with these two greasers until he realizes they mean business about killing Jim. And then he's like kind of, you know, coming clean, knocking on his doorstep late at night and trying to tell him that uh, he's sorry and that he's going to run away to Kansas City. What are you talking about? Chip's the only character in this whole movie with an arc. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yes. And he does get the most gruesome, violent death. It, because this is for TV, you can't really see it. But they, it looks like, you know, first of all, they're like, show him the face. and. You know, we get some, I guess, for TV, some effective horror. They show them that they're actually corpses that are charred. and That could have been the R-rated stuff they added, Jacob, but uh, I agree with you. This stuff was kind of fun. I like the fact that we finally get the mask ripped off of these ghosts and we see what they really look like. They're demons. I wanted a third-party shot, though, like when they were chasing down Billy on the bike. Did Chip just look like he was floating in midair on the hood of this car? <laughs> I really wanted to see what somebody else was seeing. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was assuming they had materialized by then, and anyone could have seen this. There's only one cop in this town, and he's interrogating Jim, so. But Chipster, man, this guy gets, what, torn apart. They they throw, like, his limbs out the window off the bridge, and mm -hmm. piece by piece, he does get the most gruesome death. It's satisfying. It's what I wanted all the kills to be. It have some kind of wallop to them. We didn't like Chipster, but we do feel bad for him at this point, because, yeah, he's dismembered, and that's that's pretty rough. Tough football guy, and now he's at the bottom of a ditch. But this is where I start to feel like maybe they're not going to do what the story does. Because with nobody else to kill, they have all three of the greasers that died that came back. So no one else is going to die. It's basically a race to find the fourth greaser. There was Mueller, the one that got away. The one that was smart enough to climb out of the window and run out of the path of a moving train. I'm going to give this movie credit because that character exists in the Stephen King short story. He never comes back. He, he doesn't come back. He's referenced. He's still alive. They mention going to look for him. He never shows up. Right. <laughs> they go in a different direction. I'll just go ahead and say it. They go in an occult direction. And I was ready for this movie to get a little bit more horror on. I thought once we were seeing the demon faces and dismemberments, okay, we can put away the smaltzy flashbacks and we can start dealing with, yeah, supernatural and mysticism and, you know, literal devils. But And I'm glad they don't, because to quote you, Stuart, I don't like it when all of a sudden this thing happens and somebody can shout booga 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 and they go away. You know, here, this ending is tied into the entire plot. It goes back to what created them in the first place. In King's story, I honestly got the impression he needed a paycheck and was just trying to wrap it up however he could, and it left a lot of threads dangling. Now, here they're tied up. Do I like how they're all tied up? Not necessarily, but I do think the ending has more payoff here than that short story with its pentagrams and demons. But Arnie, it is a feature. They have the opportunity now to justify that stuff. I agree. It is a very too tidy wrap up in the short story. But now that we've got 90 minutes to fill, all right, well, then you can really do it. But they don't do anything that's in the ending of the story. Uh, you know what? I'm satisfied with what this does as far as just being a ghost out for revenge story. I mean, we get this character, Bob Nell, who is the cop, 
that helped Jim, found Jim when he was a little kid and his brother had just died. And now, what, he's been shot in the head and he could see ghosts and he kind of gives us some exposition. I don't know. I, I don't know if I want the occult in this. It hasn't seemed like an occult film thus far. It just seems like ghosts coming back for revenge and, you know, people that haven't crossed over. That's why sometimes they come back. I, I'm okay. I, I don't think I need to see a pentagram in this film. Bob Nell's also the one that, yes, gives us the title and I would say is a, an even more direct callback to Dead Zone. He was shot in the head and now he can literally see the supernatural. So he's a mystical character. I thought they'd keep him around for the ending, but no, it's a one scene off so that he can actually say the title of the movie. I feel like, zoom in, sometimes they come back, cut the commercial, you know, <laughs> and, and he's gone. I felt like he would show up at the ending to be some new blood. I thought he would come and have his last hurrah of glory and die heroically. But no, he's left in the nursing home. And then they find Daryl, or maybe his other brother Daryl, or whatever the other guy was from Newhart. <laughs> that's not just the guy from Newhart. That's the guy from Blade Runner. That's true. J uh, R.J. Sebastian. Yeah, Sebastian. That's what I always go back to when I see him. Yeah, he again, uh, an actor who I don't associate with grimy, scary things, but, you know, it's a recognizable face. And, you know, he's meant to be guilt-ridden, right? He's the one that feels guilty for having participated in the murder. I mean, here's the character that they could have made the whole story about. He was the one that chased down these kids, and his three friends died for it. An innocent kid died for it, and he's been able to live 27 more years, basically in a trailer being a drunk. And now he's going to have a redemptive moment, teaming up with Jim for a finale. I like how they introduce him, though, because you think he's still a bad guy. He's very anti-Jim. He doesn't know why Jim's coming after him after all these years. The antagonism is still there, and that's very believable, and I'm glad they took the turns they did with his character. So, you know, it's about time to wrap it up. They've had a plenty of flashbacks. They've had plenty of lacrimose scenes crying, and it's time to give us a climax here. Well, not really. they got to really draw it out. they got to go to church. Yeah. Because there's this completely dropped line in one of the flashbacks. The only flashback that makes no sense is Wayne and Jim in church. And Jim's like, I don't like it here. And Wayne says, this is the safest place on earth. So adult Jim's going to take his wife and son to church. And the ghost can't step in until they're stupid enough to leave the building. <laughs> but they heard a voice. Little Scotty thought he heard his dad. You're going to find out that these greasers are great mimics for some unknown reason. And so he hears his dad, goes running out the door, despite the fact that ghouls were just smashing the stained glass windows seconds ago. And sure enough, <laughs> it's still ghouls out there. And now <laughs> the wife is just like, okay, I'll go along too. And they're all headed towards the train. I consider this all a climax. It's a drawn out one, but I think it's all happening within a commercial break. Yeah, meanwhile, Jim, he's going back to the old house to get, what blows my mind, not just the keys. I'm like, okay, he's going to get this key for whatever reason. They got to reenact this. He gets the, li they kept the library books, never returned them. Got to have more than 12 cents now for those keys. <laughs> hey, there's a Stephen King short story called The Library Policeman. Maybe that's going to be the sequel. Of course there is. And they probably, <laughs> the books come alive and eat you or something. No, the librarian comes after you for the, <laughs> for the fines. Wasn't that a Seinfeld episode? <laughs> that was too, yes. And he kept the 12 cents, too, so he's able to completely load up. So we have a, a, a basic recreation of with extra people now, people that weren't there. I think it's a little confusing that the wife and child are watching all of it from inside the car. They may be crushed by the oncoming train as everything plays out again, except this time... It's the fourth greaser that gets stabbed, and little Wayne, and I don't mean Wheezy, I, I mean the, the, the little brother. Although that would be fun, wouldn't it? If little Wayne were in this movie, it would be so much better. With the big grill. Yeah, I, I would, I would I'd definitely be smiling. But anyway, the, my point is, Jim doesn't have to watch his brother die again. He gets to watch the man that should have died 27 years ago fall down. Well, maybe. I don't know. He seemed like the least complicit goon involved in all of this. Well, he's cowardly, but I, I, you know, he was there. I'm not sure any of them did anything other than the main guy. In addition to that, I kind of thought the mother and son were in the Wayne role, because Wayne, Jim's trying to get Wayne back. After conferring with that cop, he goes to Wayne's grave and is like, Wayne, come help me. And then this shape that, I'm not trying to be foul, but it looked like a white vagina. 
Yeah, yes, that was my note. <laughs> okay. A, light, a, a vagina of light. <laughs> okay, good. It's not just me. So this vagina of light appears, but no person. And you see kind of a person in the vagina, but then it goes away. <laughs> so I took the wife and especially the son as the stand-in for Wayne. So that confuses the hell out of me when Carl gets stabbed, thus allowing Wayne to emerge from the vagina of light. And what is Wayne going to do? I, again, I, I feel like this ending is muddled. I'm not sure why they have to reenact this. Wayne, does, he doesn't show up like as a 50-year-old buff dude that's been like pounding weights in the afterworld. He's still a kid. Right. Stab him again. Yeah, yeah. I agree. It's, it's an easy takeout. And again, wouldn't it be so much better if it were gems to correct and not some ghost coming out of a ghost vagina, apparently? <laughs> I like that Wayne is still a kid, though. For some reason, I don't think you age in the afterlife. If you die as a kid, you'll always be a kid. I get it. That he, Yes, he's still going to be a kid. I just don't know what his purpose is for coming back. I don't know how he's going to save the day when this is really about Jim. I guess, you know, if I have to stretch and make an interpretation, he has to give the greasers the keys. They have to be the ones that screw up and can't start the car and get hit by the train so they could go to hell. They could be the bad guys. They can't place blame on Jim anymore for their deaths. They're Now they're solely responsible. I guess that's my interpretation of what's going on because it is kind of muddled. It's kind of a poltergeist solution, though, because what that cop says is that spirits get trapped in between this world and the next if they have unfinished business. And so all of these greasers have the unfinished business of blaming Jim for their death. And Wayne, his unfinished business is, I guess, being dead. I feel bad for Wayne. Even worse, actually. I think it's it's more traumatic to watch this scenario play back again and then find out the little brother that you were trying to protect and tell him to run away ran away, created his own family, and doesn't want to hang with you anymore. It's a really bitter thing that he's like, no, you have to go back to purgatory alone. I'm going to stay here. He's not going back to purgatory is my understanding. I mean, yeah, he'll be able to cross over and live with mom and dad. Yeah. And then eventually Jim will die and join him. Okay. Again, I guess I just wanted something darker. I kept hoping it would go somewhat darker when Wayne is like, hey, Jim, come with me. I'm like, oh, damn. Talk about poltergeist, you know, come towards the light. Come leave your family. I thought maybe you might have some conflict. I I wanted something a little bit darker because it had gone that way towards the beginning. And this is uh, it's a real schmaltzy ending. I guess it's a made for TV ending. I like this ending for the reasons Stuart said. I feel bad for Wayne in this moment. I feel worse for Wayne here, not wanting to go back into the light, than I did when he was stabbed. Out of all this ending, with all of this confusing key-throwing and stabbing and everything, it's after that, when Wayne has to go back, that I do feel bad, but I honestly think the problem here is the acting, and maybe some of the writing. It's a great idea that just doesn't play off well. And I just think that I wanted a horror story, and what I get is a ghost story. And by that, I mean literally capital G, ghost story. Ghost was a huge hit in summer 1990. This would be coming out the next year. That's why they're doing the schmaltzy thing. They want us to be crying and thinking about Demi Moore and pottery and stuff. (laughs) Yeah, Wayne and Jim are going to throw some clay. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know what they're going to do, but the idea is to be moved by this moment. They're trying so hard to build this trauma and 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 the drama of it to me it's too much i like that the story went occult i'm sad that he didn't you know requisition satan's minions to take care of these greasers i think it could have been a lot more fun but fun wasn't one on the agenda here hell even patrick swayze's ghost had satan's minions yeah exactly some very bad special effects worse than this movie yeah (laughs) yeah So are they coming back? I know we got two more movies, and this story feels really like it didn't even need to be 90 minutes. It feels done, done, done. So I'm really curious to know, are the greasers coming back? Is this family going to get in a scuffle with new punks? What the hell is going to happen next year? I cannot imagine when they come back again and and come back for more. I have no idea how you take this and continue it. I'm guessing greasers come back. How much it ties in, I have no idea. I'm looking forward to finding out. Knowing that the sequels were direct-to-video schlock, I'm at least hoping for more horror, even if it's not going to be high-quality horror. (laughs) I hope for nothing when you say direct-to-DVD. Or direct a VHS. You know, I don't know. I don't think the greasers are coming back. I think that would ruin that. If it's just the same ghost always coming back, well, I thought 
this was the resolution. They've crossed over, they've gone to hell or whatever. I don't know, maybe some criminal will come back in the next one, and probably all new people. Well, no matter what, sometimes they come back, but I know we're coming back for whatever it is. Unfortunately. But on this one, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend sometimes they come back? Jacob. You know what's surprising? I, I may have a soft spot. I know we're going to do more TV King in the future. That first Salem's Lot film I liked, and you know, I kind of like this one. It, I'm going to give it a weak recommend. There, there's a lot about it that I liked. I like the high school dynamic. I like the aspect. Is, is Jim going to be accused of a murderer? Is he going, you know, maybe not going crazy, but he's perceived as crazy when he's really not. He's acting rationally. I like that. For me, if I want to feel dread, I like that sense of a, you're losing control that despite your best intentions, you're still getting damned for him. To me, that is scary stuff. And so as a horror film appealing to that sense of horror, it kind of works. It's, you know, <sighs> this ending. I wanted it to go darker. It's kind of a schmaltzy ending that kind of convoluted. Not really sure what all the logistics are of what's supposed to happen. It's a weak, weak recommend, but a recommend nonetheless. Stewart. Wow, I'm surprised. I, I, I don't feel as generous. I, I feel like this is pretty firmly a not recommend here, but. To put things in perspective, and given that we're in night shift territory, a whole lot better than where we've been. I mean, a huge step up from Graveyard Ship, a big step up from those Mangler movies. I mean, this is just sort of, yeah, I don't even think for TV this is particularly good horror. There were plenty of anthology things on television at this point, and I thought that they would be a lot more fun. I just think that the mistake for me is that they just had to keep pushing how tragic this story was, and I just wanted it to escalate in a, in a different way than it did. If they had spent more time on anything other than Tim Madison crying about the past, I probably could have weakly pushed it over the edge here. But as it is, no, it's a pretty firm not recommend, but much better than where we're going. And and maybe I'm right. Maybe my prophecy that I didn't give it a, a green arrow, but maybe this is going to be the best of the bunch. I can't imagine that it gets better from here, but we'll have to see. I'm going to give this a not recommend, but I get where you're coming from, Jacob, because I considered recommending it. It's, I guess, a weaker not recommend. Here's the key. I don't like this movie because of the pacing primarily and the acting and the TV budget and all that that Keep entails. Going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the production quality of this is just poor. I think there are good ideas in here, though. Much like I think with King's short story. I actually think they took some of the stuff King wrote and gave it a more logical conclusion. I like some of the things here, but overall, it just doesn't cohere enough for me to recommend this. I can see, if you're a King fan, and I am, why this could be something you'd like, but one of the things I really liked about this was basically it was like looking through a King yearbook. Hey, there's some Stand By Me. Hey, there's some Dead Zone. Hey, there's some Shining. Well, just go watch those movies instead of watching this one. So that's what made me consider recommending it, is there's a lot of King in it, but the same king is done better elsewhere. So it's a we cannot recommend. I admire what they were able to pull off. It just didn't entertain me at the end of the day. I think if it hadn't been for TV, it actually could have been better. They might have been able to chop 20 minutes out of it or just rejigger it a little bit, spend a little bit more time on the students. Something, just one more degree to the left. Hell, a more clear explanation of what was going on at the end. All of these little death through a thousand paper cuts, I'm going to give it a not recommend, but I don't damn you, Jacob, for recommending it, and I completely understand King fans who would enjoy this. Well, I'm not sure I'd go that far. I think that, <laughs> you know, they've really not been able to justify taking any of these short stories and expanding it to feature length. I think that's where they get into the trouble here. I think this should have stayed as a short in Cat's Eye, and I probably would have gone with it. There's enough of there here. I can't imagine how they're going to drag this out for two more movies. I can't imagine it. But I guess uh, at least I have other things to look forward to in the weeks ahead. Not only will we be doing Sometimes They Come Back again next week, but next week we'll also be getting to The Matrix, which, spoiler alert, I like a lot more than that movie. Yes, all of the details for our spring donation drive are now up on our homepage. Click the banner at the top of our homepage to find out all of the details. Silver level donation gets you five bonus reviews, the four Matrix films, the three theatrical ones, plus the Animatrix, plus the upcoming Jupiter Ascending. 
I don't know anything more about it other than it has a really crazy-ass trailer. And if you go gold level, you'll get 13 bonus reviews, all of the Matrix films, Jupiter Ascending, plus eight, count them, eight apes. Planet of the Apes. We start with Heston and we close out with Gary Oldman and everything that comes in between. Tim Burton, James Franco... Roddy McDowell under Putty. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, actually. There are many of the original five movies that I've missed that I kind of want to catch up with. So in between Jupiter Ascending and the Matrix films, we got a lot of apes. So it should be a lot of great stuff, even if some of this King stuff is as bad as I fear. As with all of our donation drives, these podcasts are only available for a limited time. Come the end of July, all of these podcasts will go in the vault, and it's your support that keeps now playing on the air. We have no sponsors, we have no advertisers, we have no corporate backing. We are movie fans supported by movie fans. And so twice a year we do this kind of PBS pledge drive, where it's your funds that allow us to do all the shows we're doing this year. Robocop, all of this King stuff. All the theatrical stuff we're doing from Captain America, Spider-Man, Guardians of the Galaxy, Big Hero 6, all of it made possible by your donations. So thank you in advance for your support. The first Matrix review comes out next Friday for donors. We will talk to you next Tuesday when sometimes we come back again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Sometimes They Come Back retrospective series. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can't run away from this. This evil will follow you wherever you go. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another film based off the works of Stephen King. Bring the wife and kid. It's fun for the whole family. Ah! And in the archives section, you can find reviews of more Stephen King films, including Carrie, The Shining, The Mangler, Salem's Lot, plus other movie reviews of series like A Nightmare on Elm Street, Scream, Star Trek, The Avengers, Transformers, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. It's a trap! He wants you to go down there! And also visit our sister podcast at booksandnachos.com where you can hear reviews of the original Stephen King books and stories on which these films are based. Sissies with books. Read me a story, sissy. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Mind giving me a hand? (laughs) You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. No matter what the pain and the cost, I'll pay it. Please, please help me. And head over to our website to find out how your donation can get you bonus podcast reviews of The Matrix and Planet of the Apes movies, as well as this summer's new movie, Jupiter Ascending. These bonus podcasts are only available to those who donate a minimum amount before July 31st, 2014. Find the details of our spring donation drive at nowplayingpodcast.com. You want to give that to me? Oh, I'd love to give it to you. Now Playing's Sometimes They Come Back retrospective series is edited by Dylan, Phil, and Arnie. If I had known the horror we were facing, I would have run from this town forever. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. No one does a tongue tango like I do, sweetheart. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its original copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Now Playing Podcast is not affiliated with the makers or distributors of these films. None of us are here officially. You know, they know that that our country would just sweep us under the rug. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Do I get extra thinking? Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. If they're unhappy enough, something's left unsettled, sometimes they come back.
a whole lot better than where we've been. I mean, a huge step up from graveyard shift. A good, I said shit. <laughs> a good step up from graveyard shift. Time to rock jocks. It's Stuart in LA. And this is your host that's just a piece of dust in someone's eye, Jacob. <laughs> Have you been listening to Kansas again, Jacob? <laughs> Well, you took my line. You you, you, you subverted your steward in L.A. and took my line. I was hoping to. I, you know, I honestly thought, what can I, what will he do? I actually, it was an active uh, game I was playing as I was watching the movie. I was like, what's the line? And if I take it, will he, will he balk? And I knew by his stumble you took it. <laughs> I learned from that Marvel retrospective with Artie and I always fighting over lines to always have two. <laughs> <laughs> he took but would you have three? That you know, I figured Arnie oh, would do it. It was a know? struggle to have two in this one. Yeah, it was not quotable. What's funny is I was just going to every movie this series do the now playing host that sometimes comes back, but I decided to go with the big bopper. <laughs> Afterlife. If you die as a kid, you'll always be a kid. It's like the heavenly Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Where a kid can be a kid. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs> okay. Hello, Mrs. Norman. Can Jimmy come out and play? <laughs>